As you know, here on the Mark Steiner Show and on Soundbites both, we have been uh, covering the issues in Curtis Bay with some intensity over the last long time, nine years, seven years we've been covering this uh, around the development of the incinerator and other issues that are facing that community and what they've been dealing with. Uh, and recently, you know, that the number of activists in that community were arrested at the Maryland Department of the Environment. Um, and we talked to them again about that and to the folks at the Department of Environment. But now the MDE Secretary Benjamin Grumbles uh, announced that the Energy Answers International, uh, their 2010 permit to construct uh, the incinerator, uh, Fairfield incinerator, uh, has been removed because no construction has been done over the years. And so the activists saw that as a real victory. And we're going to talk about what that and, – and, and others who in the company and the union members are saying it as uh, not good for them or anybody else. So we're going to talk about that now with our two guests. James Strong is here in studio. He's the sub-district director of the United, United State Workers District 8. Good to see you again, Jim. Welcome to the studio. Pleasure, Mark. Pleasure to be here. Aaliyah Kelly is joining us. She's an attorney with the Environmental Integrity Project, one of the folks who brought the lawsuit against uh, this company. Uh, energy answers and Leah, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks very much for having me. So, what, so let's just begin this with. I'm uh, take some history. So, first of all, Leah, why did you bring the lawsuit? Give us a bit of history of where that comes from. Then we're going to turn to Jim Strong. Sure. Um, so, there, the the Clean Air Act has um, a pretty clear uh, set of requirements when it comes to the way that. Uh, major sources of air pollution, uh, which which this would be, have to uh, have to construct the actual facility that's going to produce the pollution. Uh, they have to cons- commence construction by a certain date, and then they have to continue construction according to a certain schedule. Um, this plant was very clearly not meeting the requirements for how construction is supposed to proceed. And the reason that these uh, these requirements exist is because Clean Air Act standards get stronger over time. Um, you know, new standards are are issued by agencies, um, and the perm- you're not supposed to build a plant under a permit that's been issued several years ago. It, it needs to have the most recent and the strongest standards in that permit. Um, and we took a look at this, and like I said, it was very, very clear that the the plant was not meeting the construction schedule requirements, uh, and so that that's why we took legal action on this matter. And of course, you're on the other side of this lawsuit, Jim Strong. Yeah, we we supported the project. Um, we first became involved with the project probably around 2008, um, and it was really kind of like as a result of previous relationships that I had established with. Uh, lobbyist in Annapolis. Uh, the former site was FMC that we used to represent the members there. Uh, the plant closed because of uh, uh, them opening up a facility in China. Um, there was a transition of some of the former uh, management employees from FMC to Energy Answers. But it, it, at that point, I was contacted by the lobbyist that um, represented the uh, Energy Answers. Um, he and I, and, and along with others, had worked uh, on uh, some uh, legislation in Annapolis. So that's how the relationship started. And eventually, I was introduced to Pat Mahoney. So, so let's take it to the heart of what this is. I mean, this, so so this incinerator was stopped really on a, a legal question around the Clean Energy Act and and not complying with with with, with that act um, in terms of getting uh, the permits done in in, in, in the time they're supposed to get done. But the background to this, though, is something a little bit deeper. The background to this is um, the the years back when we first started covering this with high school students at Ben Franklin High School organizing to stop the incinerator that they saw as polluting uh, their community and dumping chemicals in their community and a community that already that has um, uh, that is, has is one of the most chemically polluted zip codes in the whole country and in the state of Maryland. The other side of this was that a company wanted to build this trash to energy incinerator. Uh, people debated over whether or not this was a, it was an energy it was this about energy or trash incineration, um, but it was also about jobs because Curtis Bay is a place that it has high unemployment, and this was often an opportunity for men and women to get jobs at decent salaries with benefits. So, and that that's where the battle began. So, let's can we talk about that for a minute? I mean, because it seems to me that is really th- this was. It was stopped. Part of that was the activists making it stop and the legal procedures. But the issue here is a lot deeper. So let's talk a bit about that. Okay. Um, 
you know, I've listened to the uh, – I've been following the opponents to this project um, since we became aware of their first march um, back in December, probably about two or three years ago. Um, and I, I just want to say this. Uh, we've been involved with the project from day one. We attended numerous community meetings who in the very beginning had their concerns. But eventually there was an MOU signed by the community leaders to support the project. A lot of their issues and concerns were addressed. And as a result, uh, you know, when an MOU was drafted, the, the, the company would provide the employment, would require indirect suppliers to move into that location, uh, scholarships. And at some point, even in, uh, members from the community went up to the CMAS, the CMAS location and, and took a tour of that facility there, as we did. So, but so, Leah, can you jump in a bit about from your perspective on on, on what on some of the the all larger issues here? Sure. Um, so, I think you know when it when it comes to jobs, I, I think dealing in the reality is important. Um, as far as we can tell, the project does not appear economically viable. As far as we know, they don't have any contracts. Any they haven't sold any power. They don't have any active power sale contracts. They don't have any contracts to receive waste. It doesn't seem like they have any financing. Um, so, you know, when it comes to jobs, it doesn't seem like it's a financially feasible project. And so the reality is I, I don't see how it produces jobs. Um, and when it comes to the community, community um, you know, input and, and the way that the community has responded to the project, a lot of folks didn't know about the, the project um, before this, these high school and college students started engaging on it. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the, the dedication of those folks, uh, you know, to, to improving their community has been really remarkable. Um, youth gets a really bad rap, I think, lately these days. And these are young people who, you know, they studied the issue intensely for a year. They decided that they thought it was a bad idea. They they attempted to engage in the democratic process to influence officials and regulators who had authority over various aspects of the project. Um, and I think they should really be commended for the dedication and the time that it took to, to engage in it in that way. Well, let me just respond. Uh, again, we've been involved with the project from day one. We attended those community meetings, and that, that, that uh, association hall was packed. You had several environmental groups there in opposition. Uh, so I don't buy it that nobody knew about it, that the community wasn't aware. Those, uh, that room was, was packed. Now, regarding the jobs and the, uh, the energy answers, uh, what turned out to be a problem for Energy Answers, and it's really probably the uh, it turned out to be the white white knight for the environmental community was the low cost of natural gas. Energy Answers has the financing, but they're not going to get the financing for construction until they sell power purchase agreements. And un- unfortunately for Energy Answers, with natural gas being so cheap. It put waste energy facilities at an unfair uh, a disadvantage as far as cost. Had energy had had uh, natural gas prices not dropped, they would have secured uh, power purchase agreements and construction would have started. But they're in a catch twenty two. That's what really happened. So, so, let me get to the, the heart of one of the issues here. Two of the issues here, and to me, it's one about the what creates jobs in a in a, in a poor working class community. Uh, like the community of Curtis Bay and 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 Fairfield and and what's happening th- there, what has happened, and and the fact, I mean, that one of the things, Jim, I'm go, Jim, I'll start with you, but I'm gonna go right to Leah. I mean, that 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 when I read about the incinerator, um, that you know you're importing four thousand tons of trash per day, most of it coming from outside the city, and and most people who did these studies were saying it emitted 240 pounds, I'm reading this piece now, of brain of, of mercury, which damages brains, 1,000 pounds of lead that into the community already has the highest toxic air commission emissions in the state. Um, so the community might want jobs, but they wanted jobs that didn't have the side effect of having these pollutants being thrown out into their community. Well, I don't claim to be an expert on the emissions, but here's what I can tell you. Uh, the numbers that have been 
talked about the, the, the amount of uh, mercury and lead. Those are in worst-case scenarios. It's my understanding from MDE, and I serve on numerous task force with MDE on environmental issues. But my, my understanding is coming from MDE and the, and the reports that are provided to me is that this is the state-of-the-art facility that, that has the lowest amount of any type of emissions of mercury in the country. Um, and, and something else that, that's not been mentioned is that Energy Answers, even though they weren't required by law, was, was willing to put a, a program in place at the facility to monitor any type of mercury release, to make sure that any release was properly contained, and that they would make those records available to the community if they requested that. And they wasn't required to do that um, by law, but they were willing to do that to, to bring to the community's uh, uh, concern of being uh, exposed, try to make them feel more comfortable. So this has been an open dialogue with the company to the community on these things. And, and let me just say this. We've reached out to United Workers and Free Your Voice numerous times to try to have a meeting with them to talk about those concerns, but they've refused to meet with us. Leah? Um, Well, I can actually speak quite a bit about the emissions issue. Um, So one of the things that you you want to look – we don't have um, actual emissions from from this facility, but we have asked multiple times to have the, for example, a lower amount of allowed mercury – the, the plant is permitted to, to emit a certain amount of mercury into the air, and we've pushed to have that limit lower, and nobody has wanted to lower that limit. So they've, they've asked to be allowed to produce mercury at a certain amount. Um, the, that amount is 240 pounds, and that may, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot um, unless you know that, you know, a, a very tiny amount of mercury can, can contaminate an entire lake. Um, and it's also, when you compare it to, um, when you think about that, it's, it's also important to compare it to, for example, the amount of mercury that's produced by coal-fired power plants. In 2014, all seven coal plants in Maryland produced 65 pounds of mercury. The, the two coal plants that are in Anne Arundel County, just south of, um, of Baltimore City, it's called the Fort Smallwood Coal, coal Plant Complex, in 2014, those two plants together produced 40 pounds of mercury. Um, and they also they have a, a capacity, an electrical generating capacity of 1,900 megawatts. That's over 10 times the amount of, electri- of electricity generating capacity uh, that the Energy Answers facility would have. It was 160 megawatts. So that's a, it's a lot of mercury for a very small amount of power. So it seems to me that that the world we're in here, um, it's a very difficult world. I mean, it often pits the the America that we've lost in some ways to deindustrialization, to the corporations moving businesses out of this country, and workers losing the jobs that that made places like Curtis Bay a flourishing community once. Um, and 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 and, but the residue left behind has been toxic. But and so it it pits, in some ways, it pits unions against community and environments and environmentalists. And I, I wonder if there, I mean, you said you wanted to meet with United Workers and they, they, and the folks they didn't want to meet. So I, I wonder, is there an answer? I mean, one of the things that folks in the community were talking about are the businesses and develop we can develop, whether it's solar or wind and other things that can provide jobs that don't do the same things Energy Answer does. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this is because it's, it's a very tough question. Well, you know, again, I've listened to the segments and I've listened to some of the uh, alternatives that have been promoted. And here's what I can tell you. Uh, one of the things that I heard coming from uh, Mr. Saltman was a Gray's recycling paper. Well, they're bankrupt. And, you know, I did some research. Uh, uh, we went back and, and, and at the course that those groups were here doing shows promoting this paper plant, there were clear indications in July of last year that there were financial issues with the plant in Edmonton. Uh, they couldn't make their rent payments. And eventually, back in uh, probably January of this year, they filed for bankruptcy protection. So that was one of the alternatives. And, and the Edmonton plant only created 65 jobs. I know that it's been promoted to create anywhere from 100 and 150. That's not true. Um, the other facility that – and this was really uh, – and I'm not the one that has problems with incineration. 
I believe environmental controls, if it's done right, you know, that we should move on forward. But I, I, I know that lead's been a big issue with the energy answer facilities, but another one of the facilities that was promoted as an alternative was this plant that recycled uh, CR2 called New Life. And they opened up a plant down in Bristol, Virginia, January of last year. Um, the governor made an announcement, said it was between, uh, it was between uh, Virginia, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. They picked Virginia. I'm of a paranoid superstition. I think they picked Virginia because it's a right-to-work state. But get this, uh, Mark. In the process of separating the, the – the, the, they actually burn the CRT tubes to separate the lead from the glass. So here we have – and, and these furnaces reach 2,000 degrees. So while we're going after energy answers with the emission of lead, we also were promoting this new life company to come in and, and, and burn these tubes to separate the lead from the glass. So, so and, and Leah, let me come bring you back in here. I mean that, that this is – I mean this is – I can be in a battle. It's not just happened here but across the country. I'm just – you know that, that it that, – that, I mean it is a quandary about how – Communities survive and thrive and are not kind of killed by what the is emitted from the industries they want to bring in. Sure. Um, I mean, I think, you know, with with this particular project going forward, um, they, they do have the opportunity. Energy Answers has the opportunity to reapply for these air permits that have expired. And, you know, we don't know if they're going to do that. They, they may reapply and, and try to move forward with the project. Um, if they don't, uh, you know, the, the United Workers and For Your Voice are very dedicated to trying to, to find good jobs for this community. Um, and, you know, we have not been that, that involved in that part of the process um, because we're, you know, we're, we're primarily lawyers and we're dealing with the we, – we deal with permit issues. Um, however, I, I would, you know, really uh, – I would urge Jim to to work with them now, you know, if if there is the opportunity to to move forward and to try to find good good jobs that everybody will be happy with. Well, again, let me just say this. Um, I could say it was back in July of last year. I was heading to Myrtle Beach on vacation. I got a phone call from Pat. And sometime Pat Mahoney is the CEO, the engineer that designed the technology. Uh, he was leaving the facility, and he caught – he said he observed two people on the property taking pictures. And it turned out to be – uh, I think uh, Greg from United Workers and Destiny, he gave them his phone number and said, look, call me. Let's have a meeting next week. And he's telling me this. And I said, look, I said, I don't think they're going to meet with you. And he didn't. And I know that we've reached out to the school, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, we've even had some elected state officials that have connections with the school to try to facilitate a meeting. And they've just flat out refused to sit there and to talk about it, not that we're trying to get them to support the energy answers, but we think that there's been a lot of information that they've been given out that's really factually incorrect. And we just wanted that opportunity to sit with them. As far as the jobs at Energy Answers, again, um, we've been involved with this project from day one. We know for a fact that entry-level jobs going into this facility probably be around $38,000 a year. That's entry-level. Okay, obviously, the more skills you have and, and, you know, if you're an electrician, obviously, you'll make more money. Uh, this not, does not include the other fringe benefits that you would see in a collective bargaining agreement. So, so Leah, but talk, talk, talk a bit about the, the, what, the, 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 what you saw as the power of the suit lawsuit you brought um, and what it actually ends up saying to the rest of the community. Um, okay. Well, the, the Clean Air Act allows citizens to enforce certain uh, parts of the Clean Air Act, um, and one of them is if a company proposes to to uh, construct a major air pollution source without a permit or with a, an expired permit in this case. Um, so I think, you know, it's when it comes to citizen power and citizens really having, you know, control over, over um, pollution issues and over, you know, the, the trajectory of their communities, it's a pretty powerful um, tool. And, you know, I think it's, it's one that's, that's really great for citizen involvement and citizen participation um, in environmental decision making. So is this so, so this clearly isn't over, it sounds like to me. I mean, you just said a moment ago, Leah, that, 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 they, that the energy answers could reopen uh, their, their bid and, and reapply. Uh, and I get a sense that when, when I first heard about the court case, I, I knew that it, 
that Destiny Wilford and, and the United Workers and others who were in the community were happy that they thought that their battle stopped this energy answers. But it seems to me this feels like more like round one than the final round of this of of, of this uh, battle discussion over what's going to be built or not be built. I can't really speak to whether to yeah. what Energy Answers plans to do. They do have the option of, of reapplying. That's why I was. Co- I, mean, I, I don't know. If right. Do that. I, I made the comments. You made that comment. So I was really curious about that. And, and, and here's what I can say. Um, you know, I, I seen Pat. I was with Pat about two weeks ago. They had a community meeting at the association hall. I was there uh, in support of the project. <clears throat> I did speak to Pat a couple days later. Uh, I was in Pittsburgh, and then when the decision came down. Uh, uh, he called me up the next day and, and told me that MDE uh, was going to cancel the permit. Now, I've not had any other conversations with Pat since, and that's really by design. Uh, but I can tell you what I've told him is that, look, we've been supportive of the project, and that's not the steelworkers. This is uh, the building trade. This is anywhere from 800 to 1,300 jobs to them. Um, so there will be a coalition of labor in the event that they move forward and reapply or whatever. Certainly, uh, labor will support the project. And, and just quickly, before we go, so, so what legally would be the options if that happened again of the for the community who opposes the plan? Uh, well, the permit process um, is you know there's there's public participation built into that, so they'll have the opportunity to submit written comments. So they'll have the opportunity to have a public hearing. Um, there's the opportunity to challenge the permit um, judicially if if you know it doesn't comply with the law. So they, they're options for them to stay involved. Well, I, I want to thank – we'll be continuing this, and uh, we hope to bring the folks from uh, – Greg Sartwell and the folks from um, from uh, the coalition and the United Workers in here to talk. Um, I'm going to invite James Strong and others from the union side to come in and talk with them and really have a roundtable about the future of this community with everybody. Um, so I want to thank Leah Kelly, attorney for environmental, the Environmental Integrity Project, and for the work you all do there, and James Strong, the subdistrict director for the United Steelworkers District 8 for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much. Nice talking to you. Bye. Nice talking to you, too. We're about to have a conversation with Jeremy Cox, who is the business reporter for Delmarva Now, uh, and uh, reporting on the Department of Agriculture here in the state that released their preliminary data on uh, the soil as a result of uh, the PMT regulations, phosphorus management tool, that is. And Jeremy, welcome. Good to have you with us. Good to be here. So this is interesting. I read the, what they put out. I've been reading your your stories on all of this. Um, and um, so what, tell, tell us what this means. I mean, when you read that 70% of the fields in Somerset, Wicomico, and Worcester have a fertility index of 150, it said, right? And the state said that, that unless the 20% of the fields are affected. But, so what does that really tell us? Well, it tells us that kind of what we've known all along, that the epicenter of the overapplication is uh, down here on the lower shores uh, area where we have uh, obviously a very large broiler industry, uh, some of the most concentrated area, and those chickens uh, do indeed poop, and that poop has to go somewhere, right? Uh, and for a long time, it has gone, um, not exclusively, but it has gone to, to this fertilizer on the surrounding um, you know, corn and soybean fields. Done a great job at that. Uh, maybe a little too good when it comes to the phosphorus. And uh, as you said, uh, 70% of the, the fields... Uh, are at that that trigger uh, that they use at 150 to say, okay, we need to start taking action here to reduce the amount of uh, phosphorus that you have. And compared to the the rest of the state as a whole, uh, you're looking at less than uh, 20%. So yeah, that is a that is what they would call in the scientific world a significant difference. So I'm I'm a bit confused. My confusion is just from what I've been reading in terms of the stuff you've been writing and what I read. That Department of Ag put out. Now, so, I, I thought it was that they had not delineated clearly what what farms they were talking about. This was a whole state. Was it just the Eastern Shore? Mm-hmm. Can you pull out uh, the the Eastern Shore on its own? Right. So I don't have anything more than what the Department of Ag has put out. They've they're you know running the show when it comes to collecting these reports from farmers that are mandated under the uh, phosphorus management tool, which went into effect last summer. So uh, 
these I only have the lower shore information because they broke that out themselves. And when I say the lower shore, I mean uh, Worcester, Wicomico, and Somerset counties. So that was the Department of Agriculture who, you know, they gave us the statewide numbers initially uh, back in February and uh, subsequently uh, refined it a little bit. They got a little bit more information, but then they broke out the, the lower shore numbers uh earlier this month, March. So the only 1.2% of the farms statewide, we don't know what that right. means in the shore, or maybe right. we do, um, that, that have, have right. so much phosphorus that they're banned now from applying more, right? I do have an answer for you. Oh, good. What is the answer? It's about 10% here on the shore. Okay. So uh, that's, again, a significant difference. A significant difference, as you would expect, because there aren't very many large animal operations on the western shore, and the farming in western Maryland in Prince George's County is very different than what it is here. Correct. And it's not just a measurement of, you know, how much manure you put down, but also the ability of the, the you know, the soils to, uh, you know, trap it or, you know, ultimately let it leach into, you know, either the groundwater or surface water. So, uh, yeah, many differences, not just agriculturally, but, you know, top geographically, I suppose, uh, agronomically, there's the word, uh, between our two sides <laughs> of the state. So that when you have 70% of the fields um, have that fertility index of 150 or more when it comes to phosphorus, right. that threshold, um, I mean, that, that's significant. I mean, it does, it's so is it, So how do, they, how do they respond to that part of the data or do they? Yeah. I mean, right now uh, they're still in data collection modes. Uh, this represents about, oh, two-thirds, a little bit more than that, maybe 70% of all of the uh, fields that they're hoping to get information from. Again, they're kind of relying on farmers. Of course, now we're starting to get in the planting season and tilling and all that, as we can smell here if you've been on the shore lately, <laughs> uh, to turn in their, their paperwork. So uh, right now, you know, they're, they're they're trying to say, you know, hold off, you know, let's uh, let get all the data in. But, you know, I, I think what uh, the, the Farm Bureau and, and others uh, are, are you know, kind of happy to see that, you know, overall, uh, you look at the overall numbers, 80% not falling into that, you know, into that box. Uh, you know, they say that that, that goes to show that, uh, you know, farmers are responsible for, you know, their land and, and that the steps that they've taken, some voluntarily, some mandated by the feds and, and the state are, are working. Um, and when it comes to that that seventy percent uh, here on the lower shore, uh, you know, you remember going into this, there were the the uh, estimates of two hundred and twenty eight thousand tons of excess uh, right. phosphorus. Meaning, right. we can't, we probably won't be able to put this down anymore. We'll have to transport it elsewhere. To be honest, I'm not quite sure how that jibes with seventy percent of the fields uh, being at a fifty. But uh, I think the general consensus is we're going to be well below that number, uh, and it won't be as big of a problem to find takers or alternative uses for the manure that can no longer be you know, spread out as fertilizer. So there were, there were a couple of things that went into some of the stories mm-hmm. you did. One was um, – so what does it mean then in light of what you just said? Yeah. That Tom Pelton, who's the, from the Environmental Integrity Project – um, said, comparing, as you quote, in comparing our percentage to the MDA's recent number, however, is like comparing apples to oranges. We focus on the eastern shore poultry operations that apply manure to farm fields, and the MDA looked at all farms, uh, at farms of all kinds statewide. So, so can you help us parse that out? Was that what's the reality there? Yeah, I think what they're saying is, you know, we're when we're looking at uh, the statewide numbers, and I think uh, that was. That he made that comment before, before. they right. they released uh, you know the the lower shore numbers and, and may have done that as a result of his uh, and others criticism. Uh, what he was talking about was uh, you know you, if you're looking at the whole state, it's obviously a diverse area, and it would be easy to say water down you know the uh, lower shore with Garrett County and and western parts of the county with their numbers. Uh, which, which obviously are, are not going to have uh, anywhere near the kind of concentrations or issues that we have with phosphorus. So on the one hand, you, you could see environmental growth pushing, pushing the idea, the bill forward, that they want to have the, the, the Purdue's and Tyson's be responsible for the manure. On the other hand, you could see them arguing, well, look, this is good news. We, we shouldn't be responsible. 
uh, the the Purdue's and the Tysons of the world right. saying this is good news. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, their their argument all along is uh, uh, that this is a valuable product. Uh, the manure is that um, our contract uh, growers get to have and keep and do with as well as they please and, and as law allows. Um, and in fact, uh, we we heard the argument during the um, some of the state legislative hearings on that the Poultry Litter Management Act, which was an attempt to make the the uh, integrators uh, financially responsible. The, the argument was, you know, this could be uh, unconstitutional because the government cannot seize, you know, your property uh, from you uh, in that way. So, uh, yeah, I, I think, again, the whole uh, industry is, uh, you know, obviously everyone's watching this very closely, but if anyone's happier to see this, it would, it would I mean, everyone, no one wants to see excess pollution, but I, I think that if these numbers hold, it would certainly uh you know, uh, show that the poultry industry uh, has a lot less heavy lifting to do than what feared. So another thing you've been writing about, and I've been involved with this some, so I'm really interested in, in your take of what's mm-hmm. going on, is what's happening down around Wicomico County and and that yeah. part of the shore where the, they're, they're, the, the CAFOs are, are really, I mean, the huge CAFOs are being planned for that area, want to be planned for that area, that are not necessarily done by contract farmers from Purdue and Tyson, a very different operations going on. Um, but t- talk a bit about that. Yeah, and well, this is obviously a knowledgeable uh, audience. If there were the term around like CAFO, that's great. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, CAFO. Uh, so, yeah, I was. Uh, we had a meeting here uh, last week in which more than 400 people turned out. And as you know, I mean, it's hard to get people to come out for anything on a, on a Thursday night. But 400 people came out to hear uh, a lot of people uh, from the uh, uh, Maryland Department of Agriculture, Maryland Department of Ag, the Soil Conservation Districts, talk about the all, uh, always exciting uh, issue of stormwater management and rules and uh, what checklists, uh, boxes they have to, uh, you know, check off as they uh, as they do permitting. It was dry subject matter on, on a very uh, hot topic, you know, when you have uh, – 10, 12, 13 um, houses in one particular site being proposed. And that's really caught people by surprise here who are certainly, um, you know, accustomed to, you know, chicken houses, but not of this size. And in Wicomico, uh, subsequently was a, uh, the county council met and is kind of moving forward. They have a a list of possible ways to, um, to risk, restrict the zoning a little bit, and we're talking things like setbacks and zoning um, uh, limits and that sort of thing, uh, and uh, moving forward with that, and then, you know, we can come back and talk about that in the next several months, because I'm sure it'll take a while. And, and just, just to close up, yeah. one of the things that was, was clear, though, I think that, 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 yeah. that there was some anger at that meeting, because some people really thought that the, that the county uh, ended up kind of stacking the deck on the panel and not having right. like the open discussion people wanted. Yeah, there was uh, the, the citizens group had wanted to have some uh, uh, someone of their choosing, maybe with uh, the Johns Hopkins uh, Livable Future group, and they did not right. get that, and so they were out there picketing out front. So um, uh, certainly a diversity of opinion here. Yeah, that lots. We haven't seen or is with much energy in the past. I'm interested to follow that, and I'll be down there doing that as well. So, Jeremy Cox, business reporter for Delmarva Now, doing some incredibly good work. Jeremy, thanks so much for taking the time with us. Uh, thank you for your kind words, Mark. Now we're about to talk with Jennifer Crisp, uh, who is producer of a film called Giobi, an art and food documentary. She's a food educator who teaches seed-to-table program in Baltimore City Schools and works at the Creative... City Public Charter yes. School. Yes, an amazing school in Park Heights. Yes, it is an amazing school. So, uh, I... When I got this email, I might, actually my wife forwarded me this email saying, "You should thank do you, this. Valerie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. You're going to get a dinner. Yeah, good, good. I'm coming too. <laughs> so, um, but tell me a bit about this 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 obsession with this man Giobi. I, I watched the uh, piece you did for the Kickstarter campaign. Okay. Uh, so, so talk about this. Well, what I'm glad it? you said it's an obsession, which it is. We all, uh, it's something wrong with obsessions. <laughs> I, I like to say the passion. Um, when I was, uh, my first job was at a library in Edgewood, Maryland, and I would have to stack the books. 
And of course, I would always read the titles. And then one day, my hands just happened to touch Italian Family Dining um, by Edward Giobi. And, you know, as a child, we had a, I grew up in a great family of chefs. And I wanted to know how other people and other families Mm -hmm. cooked. I was like, oh, how do Italians eat? So I was looking through the pages and I saw the beautiful drawings and the stories, the wonderful stories of uh, him in Italy and his dad and his cousins um, in Italy. And so that's how I first met him, through the book. And I just started cooking from his book and entertaining friends and my family. And uh, years went by. I moved all around the country and I always took that book with me. It was like my Bible. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, the way I met him was in... Let me ask you before you... So, okay, go ahead. So, so what was it about Giobi's book? I mean, that, I mean, you know, Italian cookbooks were Italian cookbooks. I have a few of them. Okay. But so... But what, what, what was it about this book? What, what happened? They, they raised him and his family. They raised their own vegetables. They they killed rabbits and they killed their own animals for food. They raised honeybees. They baked their own bread. Um, and I was just fascinated about how you can really do this. You know, growing <clears throat> up in Sparrows Point, we would have a local fisherman come around. We, Me and my dad, we fished along the Chesapeake Bay. We still do. Um, we picked our own our own uh, corn and tomatoes and as much local produce as we can. So I came to identify with that family, um, and I just thought it was wonderful. It was sustainable long before that word came to be popular, sustainable. Just a very beautiful family. So I just had to – I just wanted to do everything like he did, make wine, which I do. I make my own wine. What kind of wine do you make? Uh, Well, it's it's (laughs) California wine Uh and – it's simmering, right? It's fermenting, still fermenting in my basement. I crush the grapes with my feet. Yes, I do. You do not. Yes, I do. I have beautiful feet. I'm sure you do, but yeah. So and I'll, people crushing. Yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, because I was going to buy a, a, a grape crusher, but it was like a thousand dollars, and I'm like, well, how many pounds of pressure does it take to crush these grapes? And they were like, oh, two hundred, you know, one eighty. I'm like, oh, I can do that myself. So and it's just the just the beauty of it, you know. And that, uh, an- another thing that inspired me was, of course, Lucille Ball. Oh, that and was that, one of the funniest yes. scenes ever when she did in the, in Lucille Ball when she did the crushing the grapes. Yes. she and Ethel. That yes. was hilarious. Yes. yes, but I sanitize my feet. They have sanitizers <laughs> that you know, and it just it's just a wonderful thing to be able to. Yeah, so you wouldn't want some funky feet doing the, oh, no, doing no, the grapes. No, that would no. be bad. I'll no. take my shoes off if you need, <laughs> if you need to see my feet. No, I trust you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so so. so so there was something, though, that about Jovi's work. I mean, this, from what I've read that you sent us and the little short piece in the film, I mean, he's an artist and yes. um, and a chef, and he's kind of lived his life the way he's wanted to live his life exactly. by his own definition. Exactly. Yes, he is an artist foremost, foremost and he's the author of seven cookbooks. Um, he lives in upstate New York, but it's just his passion. I don't know. It feels like I met him in a previous life. It's just his passion, which I have. He doesn't sell a lot of his paintings. They're all, most of them are housed in his art gallery, in his art studio in New York. But his works have been shown all over the world, uh, a lot in Italy. And it's, he also has some board panels from his farm house um, at the Baltimore Museum of Art that I was able to check out. Um, and I just connected really? with him. And it's been like over 36 years oh, you've been, that I've been following oh, him. Oh, I had a totally different impression. Yeah. So you've been actually in relationship with him as a friend for all this time? Well, since 2008. Okay. Um, you know, I, I had a near-death experience. Um, I'm an ovarian cancer survivor. Good. And um, I won't go you into survived. De- Thank you. I won't go into detail about that. It's okay. But what I had my, my out-of-body experience, and I told you over this story, I said when I was out, uh, my heart stopped for like, almost two minutes, and I wrote a list of everything I wanted to do, and I told him I wanted to meet Joby, and he had said, well, you weren't going to meet me up there, and so <laughs> when I came to, I made a list of things I wanted to do, which was to to, to meet him and to tell him how much I appreciated all the all, all the um, inspiration that he's given me all, over these years, and so I decided to call him. It was a hot August day, and his wife answered the phone. I knew it was his wife. It was the older lady. And she had that accent. So I She's told Italian him, as well? 
she is from Tennessee. Tennessee. Oh, that accent. Yeah, she has a Tennessee <laughs> accent. So I told her, I, I said, I just want to say thank you for sharing your husband and and your books. And we talked for about 10 minutes. And she said, well, he's on the tractor in, in the garden. And we were having a heat wave on the East Coast at the time. I'm like, how is this 85-year-old man uh, gardening? And uh, so I said, thank you, hung up. About an hour later, I got a phone call. I had caller ID back then, and I saw his name, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he's calling me back. And then we ended up talking for two hours, and um, he sent me some art books and some seeds in the mail. And, you know, a couple years went by, and I said, I really want to meet him and make a film about him. So I contacted his daughter on Facebook, Eugenia, and she said, well, maybe next summer he's in Italy. So I called her that next summer. She said, well, maybe in the spring. He's so busy. So I called her in the spring, and then she called me back, and then the rest is history. She gave me the go-ahead to visit him in Katona, New York, and to film him, which which I've I've done with the help of my – colleague, Kimberly Johnson, from Howard University. So it's interesting. So, uh, I, I, here you are, a black woman mm-hmm. from Spires Point, yep. <laughs> who wants to do a movie about an old Italian man who paints pictures yep. and, and grows his own food. Exactly. And you're teaching at an incredible charter school, mm-hmm. yep. uh, creative, creative, City Public creative, charter creative City Public School in Park Heights. Yep. With a lot of poor black children who go to that school as well as children from around the city. Yeah. Right? And we use his recipes in our cooking class, and they know all about him. Interesting. Yeah. So talk about, you know, I was thinking about this as I was looking at this. You know, I, the one, one person comes to my mind all the time that, that crosses that Italian black divide is Spike Lee. You know, in all his films, he always he crosses that. Yes, right. Yes. Well, you know, I've had a Sicilian. Not divide, but that were those worlds. I well, mean. I, I had a Sicilian uh, where I get my grapes from. He's he's Sicilian, and he said that Sicilians, Italian people, are are, are black people turned inside out. So maybe that's. Well, I, the, some of my Italian friends didn't appreciate this. I used to tell years back, my Italian friends, some of them were Sicilian, was that well, don't you understand? You, you all are the original Afro-Europeans anyway. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> It's, it's so close, Italy and Sicily. Right. They're, they're like touching each other, Africa. Right. right. So, so tell me. So, I'm curious about how Giobi's work inspires and informs the work you do um, at the Creative School in Park Heights. Well, you know, um, I co- I've co-authored a cookbook with my students and an art student, Abby Bennett from Micah. It's her graduate thesis. So we paired up together, and um, I wanted to do an art and food book, and the cookbook. It's all about what we've grown in the garden and how they learn to cook from the garden. And his artwork is just inspirational. Like in his cookbook, Italian Family Dining, his children have done most of the artwork. And they were young kids at the time. Of course, they're grown now. It's been since, what, 1975, I believe he wrote that book. But just everything about reading his stories and his passion. You know, because like I always say, I don't make a lot of money. You know, I'd rather make a lot of sense instead of a lot of dollars Mm -hmm. so I try to make a lot of sense and I want children to be inspired like I was I had a wonderful childhood you know with my family and I see children today they don't have that passion that imagination like we did growing up because everything is just given to them and I mean there are some great kids out there don't get me wrong and just his love of of cooking food I see what kids bring to school in the morning for breakfast, chips, soda, um, and they'll spend like $5 for it. And I realized that food and behavior are interconnected. Right. They're interconnected. If you don't have your brain nourished, it's hard to learn. It's hard to, to have coping skills. So I'm just totally in, in awe inspired by it. Well, him. what is in this film you want to do? So what does Joby have to say to those children? He says that one of the quotes that I really remember that he said about when children plant a seed mm-hmm. and they take care of the plant, it, it embellishes their humanity. They want to take care of the plant. They don't want to hurt the plant and they don't want to hurt other people. And it's all a win-win situation. Do you find that true when you work with kids? Oh, yes. They they worry. I see the outer layers of pain coming off like the seed coating coming away from the seed and they can gauge how the seed and how plants are like people you know Mm -hmm. we need food we need water we need sun and we need um 
the earth. And I want to show them how they can be more environmentally um, knowledgeable and taking care of the planet. And then they can make a difference. So if you get this film made, you are getting this film made, I'm sure. Uh, regardless, if we meet our, if we if we don't meet our goal or not, I w- I'm just going to pickpocket myself <laughs> and make it happen. You know, I want to have it done. He'll be 90 years old, July the 18th. Oh wow! He'll be 90 years old, and I'm honoring him. I'm not making any money off of it because we're paying for an editor, post production. I mean, who makes a film for ten thousand dollars? No one does that. No, it's very hard to do. But you had this on Kickstarter, G I O B B I B B I. Yes, is, right. It's on www.kickstarter.com, um, and it's G O B. It's spelled G I O B B I. And and you call him. This is your mentor. Yes. So what does that mean to you? He's well, like I said, he makes wine. And I make wine. His wife raises honeybees. She used to. I'm raising honeybees. Um, I love art. My house is filled with original art, not his art. Um, and I love to cook all of his meals. So I'm trying to emulate everything he does in hope of inspiring other people. Maybe you don't want to be a chef, but maybe you could be, you'll be inspired by his story. Well, what is it about his philosophy of, of life that, that grabbed you so deep. I mean, I, I clearly the book did when you read the book as a, as a young woman, younger woman, you read the book and the, the recipes and the artwork really pulled you in. But what is it about what he's saying to the world through this? That, that, that He's saying that we're responsible and then we are in charge of, we should be in charge of creating our own food, of growing our own food with the GMOs that are on food and the the, the capitalization and just... We don't cook like we used to, and that that's what really inspires me. I was able to sit down at his table where Jacques Pepin and Julia Child and Pierre Frenet have eaten. Um, Martha Stewart wants to eat at that table, but she wasn't invited. Um, I, I won't. I won't. Um, I won't tell his. I won't say his views. Why not? On Martha Stewart, you won't tell us. No, he. No, I told him I wouldn't. I wouldn't share that. Hmm. Um, you know, she tried to own the whole town. I'm sure of, that's of right. Katona. Yeah. So, but hit, but I'm just inspired by everything he's done. Um, it's just not one thing; it's everything that he's done that has inspired me as a chef, as an educator, and I want to share it with young children. I want them to be more responsible what they put in their bodies, and and let them know that you should be able to cook for yourself. So, how's that working at the school? It's working wonderful. Because what have you seen that changed? Oh my goodness, they the parents. I, I get um, accolades from the parents. They tell me one parent came to me and said, "You know, Carter, he never eats anything green, and he we uh, he we went to the grocery store, and he got cabbage and Brussels sprouts." So the 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 the, <laughs> the children are teaching the parents how to cook. You know, we make curry powder. We we create spices. They know their spices. They know how to, they know how to chop and handle a knife. It gives them self esteem. See, cooking isn't all about cooking. It's about having self esteem. It's about having passion. One of my students who is who has very trouble reading and learning, mm-hmm. she can roll the best egg roll I've ever seen, and just the look on her face, and her confidence. It just gives them confidence when they can show that they can accomplish something, and it and it's it's immediate gratification that they get so so the film you've already started shooting this film right yes we uh, saw obviously online that yes i spent um two wonderful days this summer with him in upstate new york and i was just with him for two days we walked around his beautiful estate his art studio his kitchen i just i didn't know what to say to him when i went up there and then i realized that he was going to say everything well i just want to encourage everybody to, to to like be inspired by this. I mean, I, I, you know, I never heard of this fellow before. I want that cookbook, though. Is he still around? He's unsung. He's unsung. And one of I have wonderful rewards. Um, you can see on my Kickstarter page. And if anyone wants to come up with another reward, I'm, I'm willing to, 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 to think about that. And also, if you want to be an executive director and just, and just fund the whole thing, you'll get the credit of being executive <laughs> director. But he's an unsung yeah, hero. Yeah, producer, you mean? Yeah, produ- producer, producer yeah, right, right, director. Right. He's an unsung hero, and his story should be told um, 
it should be told just like every other great American. It's a great American story. No, it's it's an amazing piece. I mean, it's just some. Thank I've ne- you. It really is, and I, I'm really um, I'm very anxious to see this cookbook, the original one that inspired you. Is it still available? Yeah. It, well, I have the last copy. The last copy. The last copy that um, I should have brought. I didn't bring it, but um, I can pop by later and show it's it okay. to you. Yeah, I have one more copy of the, of the original Italian Family. His other cookbooks are online, like Pleasures of the Good Earth. Um, he has seven cookbooks, so they're all they're all available online except for that one, and I'm giving them away as rewards as well. Well, folks, so to do this, you want to support this work of Jennifer Crisp, who's doing amazing work with our young people in Park Heights, um, and you just go to Kickstarter.com and type in the word G I O B B I G O B. Yes, yes, G I O B B I G O B. Fifty two days, fifty some days left for this campaign. Yes. So they can back do this project, and uh, you're doing this with this marvelous filmmaker from Howard University. Yes, Kim Lou Johnson is right here in the studio. She's shy, you know, like most filmmakers are. So, so this is so folks do this. It's just be really. I'm really curious to see how this will, how this unfolds for you, and I hope this really does work. I hope it does because it's a wonderful story. Everyone will be inspired by his by this story because the idea of of people actually taking control of their own destinies in terms of raising our own food. I know Park Heights is, and the community itself is doing a lot with their own farm that they've grown their own food for the community and created this uh, um, group that uh, people can actually afford the food, yes. which doesn't usually happen yes. in farmer's markets. Yes. Um, and, uh, and so, I mean, this is all kind of connected. Yes, and we give, a lot, we give away whatever we garden. Uh, you know, I teach the kids how to garden. We gave a lot of food away. We gave over like 300 pounds of food away from our garden, from our school garden, whatever we didn't use in um, the Seed to Table program that I run there. So we gave away a lot of food. I want to also do community cooking lessons for the community. And that's one of the rewards as well, is um, to give community cooking lessons. I want to give 10 of them. I do one a month, because I already do free. I do a lot of volunteer work through Michelle Obama's Let's Move, uh, Chefs Go Back to School um, program that she has. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing this film when it's done. I'm looking forward to tasting Thank your food you as so well. Much. Yes. So, so you will. <laughs> I was going to bring some today, but I That's asked. Right. We got the honey. I can't wait to try the honey. Okay. Yes. So go to Kickstarter.com. Uh, type in G I O B B I. Uh, it's really well worth it. Out of the heart of Baltimore, um, to tell the story of Edward G O B to inspire the rest of us in this city. And Jennifer Crisp, thank for the work. Thank you for the work you do, and thank you for coming in. Thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate it. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Tom Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Siana Greaves, Morgan Barber, Monifa Wilson, and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast of Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. For your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.